Chapter 6 The click of her door and a sibilance in her ear woke Stella from a miserable night's dreaming that Cheryl was weeping behind bars. But as she wrestled herself through her bedclothes back to consciousness, she identified the whisperer as Mad Cassandra Browning. Stella Raymond, I was right, wasn't I? You're back among the living. Stella groaned. The gray light between the window blinds above the door told her it couldn't be after five in the morning. Did Cassandra, at 88, not understand how difficult it was in old age to get a reasonable night's sleep? Once awakened, Stella's window of opportunity for falling back to sleep narrowed with every year on this earth. She shouldered her way down under the covers and gave a soft but penetrating false snore. Footsteps padded away from the bed towards the door, and then past the door, and into the washroom. Cassandra was taking a little tour of the premises. Keeping quite still, Stella breathed into her trusted sleep mnemonic. A. My name is Allison. My husband's name is Arthur. We come from Abbotsford, and we sell... But Cassandra returned. Stella! I'm sorry I abandoned you upstairs. I want to show you something wonderful to make up for it. Cassandra's whisper tickled Stella's ear. We sell artichokes. There was no telling how Cassandra defined wonderful. Stella soldiered silently onward with her mnemonic. The bed heaved as Cassandra climbed onto it. Stella clutched at her sliding duvet. If I, either of them had been any fatter, they would certainly have fallen off with it. Cassandra bounced the bed a bit. And, as usual, Stella envied the older woman her agility, although not her stringy witch-like hair. B. My name is Bridget. The sheet snapped back and light touched Stella's eyelids. Stella! Do you want to meet some dead people? <laughs> oh, Cassandra. No, thank you, dear. Stella sighed. She struggled to sit upright. Her cotton nightgown, a different one from the nightgown she'd worn upstairs, caught her under the arms. If you tell me the room number... I'll come visit you when I do get up, she promised. I can't recall your corridor. Is it Primrose, Chrysanthemum, Daisy? Cassandra clasped her hands against her narrow chest. Please, just let me do this for you, Stella. Cassandra leaned closer, her gaze too bright and her breath too terrible to bear. She took hold of Stella's hands and pulled, yet even... Mad Cassandra could not easily raise Stella so early in the morning, not without straightening her various limbs, but, f but for a miracle, as Cassandra, with her wild and wiry strength, hauled her out of bed and upright, Stella's hips did their job with hardly a complaint. Standing before the bed in her stretched velvet truck suit and grubby bare feet, 
Cassandra's eyes grew wide and pleading. Letting go again, she vanished through the door. Stella didn't mean to follow. She meant to turn right into her own little washroom, where the water was warm as a younger lover's kiss. But although she might have resisted the pleading in Cassandra's eyes, those bare feet with their cracked heels and horny yellow toenails filled her with such sorrow that instead she set her glasses on her nose, pulled open the door to the corridor, and followed Cassandra through. Out in the empty, low-lit corridor, Stella looked to her right. That way was a dead end, with nothing but a fire door leading to the outdoors. So she made two fists and padded left along the corridor past closed doors with their family photos and drawings by well-loved family members of the elders within. Whatever makes us happy, she thought bitterly with a backward gaze at her own undecorated door. As she came around the corner into the empty corridor part, she saw Cassandra just ahead. Feeling the full weight of an unwanted friendship, she followed the woman round the corner. Cassandra looked back at her over her shoulder, a delighted frown on her face, and then led Stella down a short corridor that smelled of cold steam and bleach. Stella hadn't thought about laundry since she had left her own house. Now, somebody did it for her. Who? She hadn't thought to ask who was drying her sheets and rolling her underwear into neat little nylon sausages. Cassandra stopped at the end of the corridor. Stella stopped too. She shifted her weight from one hip to the other to loosen her midsection a little more. As she did so, she read the little black signs on the two doors to the right. Both doors were labeled staff only, and she resisted an almost unbearable urge to open them and walk inside. Across from these doors against the opposing wall stood a large faux wood cabinet, half blocking the single door on that side of the corridor. Cassandra slapped the cabinet. Sometimes this wheelie cabinet blocks the door. The room in behind the cabinet is like Brigadoon. You can only find the way inside on certain magical days. She nodded at the door beside it. Today we can get in. You want to see the dead people, don't you, Stella? She asked again. Oh, Cassandra. Stella wished to heaven. The woman uh, would have been just two inches saner. Cassandra arched her brows winningly. They're very sweet. Stella crossed to read the label on the door. Printed in white letters against black laminate, it was difficult to make the word out, even with her glasses on. Her vision swam as it sometimes did, but there was only one word, and that, not a long word, it read, Effects. Stella wondered what this could mean. Special effects? Sound effects? Cause and effects? The door would be locked, of course, and Stella said so out loud. Cassandra nodded, covered her laugh with the palm of her hand. 
Cassandra, Stella, Stella tried the handle. It turned. The door opened. Very curious now, she led the way through. Touching the wall to the left of the door and then to the right, she found a light switch and flipped it. Before her stretched a long, narrow closet. It was shelved from floor to ceiling in cubbies of the same golden-red, highly-grained wood that she associated with school closets built in the 1950s and 60s. Each shelf was jammed with articles. Before she could see what they might be, Cassandra pushed past her and wandered down the aisle space between the shelves. She danced her fingers from shelf to shelf and then paused, beaming, about halfway to the far wall. I know you, Mad Cassandra said to the cubby. She reached inside and pulled out a length of cloth, purple velvet. A gold fringe on the ends fell across Cassandra's prominent knuckles. She greeted the scarf with obvious pleasure. Why, Joy Hamaguchi, as I live and breathe. Understanding blossomed in Stella. The purple velvet scarf was one of the unclaimed effects of dead residents. Cassandra, are these the dead people you wanted me to see? These are all there's left of them. The possessions that went unclaimed when they died. Cassandra wrapped the late Joy Hamaguchi's scarf around her neck and smoothed the fringe against her bony breast. Their personal effects. Stella, Stella shivered as much on account of the company as the morning's chill on her bare arms. She looked down and saw that she was still dressed only in her nightgown. Again. Cassandra slipped round behind her and set herself in front of the door to the corridor. The shelves stuffed with the belongings of past, very much past, residents of Fairmount Manor rose to either side of her like the steep walls of an ancient treasure-filled tomb. I should go back, she told Cassandra. But isn't it nice here? Yes, Stella lied, although she did like the feeling of quiet and privacy she felt in the narrow, cubby-lined space. Don't you feel as if you're among friends? For Pete's sake, Cassandra, stop trying to scare the dickens out of me. Stella wandered a little way toward the far end of the narrow space where a window admitted green-filtered light. She ran her fingers across the spines of several books. One fell over in its cover. Reaching from behind, Cassandra snatched the book up and pressed it into Stella's hands. This is for you, she said breathlessly, to make up for leaving you upstairs. That, that's very nice of you, dear, Stella said. Never before had Cassandra sustained contrition for any length of time. Remorse didn't suit her at all. And yet, the gesture was touching in its way. Promise, Stella stared down at the worn, red-covered edition of 
the prisoner of Zenda, that Cassandra presented to her. A nice bit of storytelling, that one, despite the Bridges of Madison County ending. Opening at random, she drew in the velvety old book smell. She looked down and read. If we go back and tell the trick we played, what would you give for our lives? Just what they're worth, I said. Just what our lives are worth? In her own case, exactly what would that be? And Stella said, Thank you, but I must go back now, Cassie. Why? Cassandra asked. She didn't stay uh, to be answered, but slipped out through the door, closing it behind her with a heavy click. Heart thudding, Stella hurried to the door. She pulled at the handle. It would not open. Chapter 7 At first, Stella thought she must be mistaken. She could not be locked in a closet like a sandbag detective in a Chesterton tale. This is Fairmont Manor Care Home, where doi doors had a tendency to seem to be locked and then opened at a second attempt. She wiped both palms on the skirt of her nightgown and tried again. The doorknob would not turn. She called out, and then banged on the door with her fist and the flat of her hand. Then she fell silent and listened, but heard no response. Butterflies of unease began making a fuss inside her chest. She tried not to imagine a cleaner wheeling the cupboard outside across the door to the effects closet, obscuring it from searching eyes. This cupboard was indeed Brigadoon. It might easily vanish from sight, never to reappear for a number of years. Or anyway, not until it was too late for Stella. She took a step towards the window, but as so often happened, panic blurred her vision and spun her balance out of whack, so she stumbled against a shelf and had to use both hands to regain her equilibrium. Clumsy. Exactly when had all that yoga she did in her sixties worn off? Shaking her head, she made her way down towards the window. As she tugged on the cord to raise the blinds, she made grand prisoner of Zenda-like plans for opening the window and escaping through it. But once the blind was up, she could see that it was the sort of window that did not open. Moreover, outside it was nothing but laurel hedge grown thickly up against the glass, so she could not even gest gestulate for help. She sat down on the carton beneath the window and rested her feet on an expensive-looking leather-bound photograph album that might have been left on the floor for the purpose. Disappointment overtook her. Nobody, even at breakfast, would miss her. She had missed breakfast too often to worry anyone on that account. However, by lunch, Cheryl, or Reliza, might notice that she was not found in her usual chair beneath the skylight in Corridor Park, 
and Ollie, yes, that made three to search for her, three to come to her rescue. She would not, they would not look in this closet first, but they would look in it eventually. But what did she mean by eventually? And would anybody even remember to look inside the effects closet? There were so many doors and rooms in Fairmount Manor. And as she sat on her carton, staring at the door, it occurred to her that the effects closet doorknob was unusual and possibly unique in the building. All the doors she'd ever seen in Fairmount Manor had a latch, a lever, on which you pushed down to open. This one had a knob that was meant to be turned, most likely an anachronism left over after an institutional remodel. That meant this particular door was rarely used. It might very easily be overlooked in any search. Stella might never be found at all. I should never have followed Cassandra, Stella said aloud. It was a very foolish thing to do. I should have turned on my heel and headed back home to room 34. Yet the blame was not solely down to her. Management had a stake in this too. Imagine having a cupboard in a care home that locked automatically and would not be opened from within. It was a very silly state of affairs. Very poor management. Unless the truth was that Cassandra, in a fit of puckish madness, had deliberately locked Stella in here. She breathed in, right down to her diaphragm, the way she had learned in those yoga classes she had taken so long ago. Then she exhaled up through her collarbone, throat, and nose. She tried to remember exactly what Cassandra had said before she left Stella alone in the cupboard. She thought it had been the single word, why? But why had Cassie asked why? As she inhaled again, the answer came to her. Cassandra had wanted to know what Stella had to do that was so very important that she couldn't spend a little time with the dead people in the effects closet. Well, Stella knew the answer to that. She had to, one, eat her breakfast, but she wasn't even hungry, two, make her bed, but one of the care workers would do that for her. The truth was, nobody needed Stella. The only person counting on Stella to get out of this closet was Stella herself. A sort of humphing sound emerged from the back of her throat. She glared at the door. How she would have liked to have the chance to ask Cassandra, Well, Cassie, what's so all-fired important about your morning? Got to spread some of those patented craziness around? Lock some more old ladies into closets? She leaned back against the cool glass of the window and stared between her feet at the photograph album beneath them. It was an expensive bit of work. Green snakeskin or something that looked very much like it. Her left foot half 
covered the name printed in gold on the front cover. McAn... She moved her foot and read, McAndrew. What was Mrs. McAndrew's photograph album doing among the effects of the dead? Alice McAndrew, the dragon, was very much alive, so much so that it was she who had accused Cheryl of theft. Stella remembered now how Cheryl had wept, and with shame that Cheryl had told her, There's nothing you can do, Mrs. Ryman. One after the other, Stella kicked her heels against the carton. They made a hollow sound, like the thumps that began plays at the Academia Francaise. Thump, thump, thump. And the curtain rises. The detective enters the scene. After all, if she ever got out of this cupboard, there must be something she could do for Cheryl. With one toe, she opened the cover of the photographic album. Mrs. McAndrew, many years younger, but still recognizable by her dragon's glare, stared up at her. Stella stared back. Letting the album cover fall shut, she stood and walked to the door. With a sense of energy she had not thought to feel again, she pounded her fist against it. Again, she called out several times, and when at, and when at last hope failed, she rested her forehead against the door and whispered, Damn you, Cassandra. In the moment of quiet that followed, she heard what she was sure was the sound of quiet laughter. She turned the knob again. It turned, and the door opened. She was halfway through before she remembered to snatch up the prisoner of Zenda. Clutching the book to her breast of her nightgown, she made her escape. Chapter 8 Washed, dressed, and on her way back from breakfast in the dining room, Stella was trying so hard to devise a way to approach the dragon that she nearly knocked over a woman from Fern Corridor. Without a glance for Stella, the woman stabilized her walker and doggedly clicked on by. Once she had steadied herself, Stella made her way toward Daffodil Corridor. She passed the yellow trolley, standing alone, the one that Ollie was always leaving here and there while he disappeared for twenty minutes at a time. She suspected that he smoked, although that was none of her business. Well, bearding Miss Alice McAndrew was none of Stella's business either. As she raised her hand to knock on the dragon's door, she found this an unexpectedly cheering thought. Into the belly of the dragon. Stella squared her shoulders. Be calm. Be rational. Tame her with reason. She waited. Then, having received no reply to her first knock, Stella rapped again a little harder. No one answered. But no one said, go away, either. Taking this as an invitation, she let herself into Mrs. McAndrew's room. Once inside, she was prepared for wealth and bad temper. 
Even more, she had imagined a certain Miss Habersham gloom. But she had never thought to find in the 11 by 15 foot space allocated to each of the residents of Fairmont Manor such shining and cheerful abundance. In the course of her long and often overfull life, Stella had known the interiors of countless, countless rooms arranged by women whose tastes ranged from miniature ornamentality, as Stella liked to call the condition, to ponderous elegance. Mrs. McAndrew's smallish room out-ornamented and out-eleganted them all. The bed was cherry wood, and the bedside table ebony inlaid with ivory, crystal bowls, toll vases, and more clocks than even busy people needed snuggled together atop every gleaming lemon-scented table and atagar. I don't know what that is. Under Stella's feet, a red Turkish carpet overlapped a white wool Chinese carpet overgrown with flowering vines. All around the room, the walls were checkered with large and small paintings hung in Mondrian-like patterns, frame abutting frame, and on the wall holding pastel portraits, jowl rubbing up to jowl. A vanity table, richly bobbled, was stacked with leather-bound albums of varying dimensions, of which one must be missing, Stella thought, remembering the album she had found in the effects closet. But would the dragon even know it was gone amid such a plethora of lux? The room reminded Stella of her last visit to London twenty years before. It's like walking into Woolworth's, she said aloud, and finding yourself in the British Museum. Behind her, the washroom door clicked open. Isn't it just, Mrs. McAndrew, smelling strongly of hyacinth soap, stalked past Stella and clambered up onto her bed. Stella attempted to aid her in the climb, but for her trouble was gifted with a dragon's glare. Mrs. McAndrew pulled an embroidered throw blanket across the lap of her velveteen lounging suit. I heard you were dead, Mrs. McAndrew said. There was no way to know whether she was criticizing the accuracy of her source or Stella herself for disapproving the rumor. So, the woman was going to be even more difficult than she had imagined. Stella cleared her throat. Dragons or no dragons, the world sent too few opportunities for an apt quotation to let one go by. The report of my death was exaggerated, she said. Misquotation, Mrs. McAndrew straightened a tapestry bolster at her back. Mark Twain, such an easy one to get right, too. Stella had not got it wrong. But 
In the face of all this polished and lemon-oiled splendor, her mother's good manners kicked in, and she did not correct the woman. Well, Stella, you barge in here and disturb my morning? While the dragon spoke, several clocks about the room struck the hour. Stella counted an ormoli, a glass-domed Victorian model, and a lavishly carved Swiss monstrosity over near the velvet-draped window. But it was the clamor of the mahogany grandfather near the washroom door that Stella recognized, for its deep toll had often awakened her in the small hours when fatigue and boredom diminish hope. The dragon finished. So what do you want? I'll sit down, shall I? The overladen van vanity had a small matching stool. Stella pulled it up beside the bed and sat down. How's the weather outside? Spring-like, I suppose. I'm not here to talk about the weather, Stella said firmly. I'm here to save you from making a fool of yourself. Mrs. McAndrew sat up a little straighter. You can save yourself the trouble. I'm no fool, Stella Ryman, and I don't have to explain myself to you. This was absolutely true. Even so, accusing a member of staff of stealing a coin in an overfurnished, yes, she would say it, she waved a hand to encompass the object d'art, uh, the cheek-by-jowl furnishings and the paintings quilting the walls. Half the ceiling blossomed forth with prism rainbows from the crystal bobs on at least five lamps. In an overfurnished traffic jam like this is very foolish indeed. Unladylike, Alice McAndrew snorted. I see you have no eye for art, she replied. These are objects of great beauty and joys forever. Very shiny, too. Stella yielded the point, and then she pounced. Polish them yourself? The dragon's eye flamed in Stella's direction. Cheryl helped, as you well know. I also had help looking for my family's missing coin when it went missing. I am not an unreasonable woman. Stella asked, Is it reasonable to threaten a staff member over a single little coin, especially when you have so much? I call that crazy, Alice McAndrew, and I wouldn't be the only one who thinks so. That coin, Mrs. McAndrew said, has been in my family for many years. It was Stella's turn to snort. <laughs> I used to keep a sock full of pennies in my kitchen drawer. The stolen coin was privately minted not long after the Battle of Colin Dean in 1745. It had a picture of Bonnie Prince Charlie on one side and Flora MacDonald's bonnet on the other. The McAndrews married into the McDonald's, you know. Alice McAndrew proved that her face had at least one smile. Stella had a momentary vision of the woman she must have uh, been like as a small, pugnacious child on the playground. Stella reminded herself of her vow to keep calm and rational, no matter what the woman said. You don't say, she murmured. I do say, Dragon countered, clearly enjoying herself. 
Furthermore, some years ago, the Bonnie Prince Charlie coin was valued at $15,000. It would be worth more now, wouldn't you say? I suppose so. Stella scanned the room, attempting to guess the number of places, shadowed and narrow, that a coin rolled under or into in this forest of valuables. Just thinking about such a search was fatiguing. Stella said, Well, I'm going to find that coin, and then you're going to feel like a very silly woman. Mrs. McAndrew descended from the bed to the floor and also from haughtiness to the vernacular of the schoolyard. Takes one to no one, she said. Where are you planning to start anyhow? Where did you keep the thing in the first place? Not in your wash bag or underwear drawer, I take it? Stella rose from the vanity stool, one hand on a stack of albums atop the vanity. You've got your hand on it, Mrs. McAndrew said sweetly. It's the top album with the red crocodile binding. That's where my family keeps the coins from the 18th century. She turned with grace and made her way back into the washroom, shutting the door behind her. Having made a rude face at the washroom door, Stella flipped open the cover of the album. She flipped through. It was one of those elderly albums with pages of thick, pungent gray cardboard. The pages were doubled and the coins of various sizes had been fitted into holes in each page. Most of the eight or ten holes on each page were full, and what must have been their provenances were listed beneath each coin in a spidery, illegible hand. Page after page of coins it was all very dull stuff. Stella decided that she felt about coin collections the way she felt about butterfly collections. Coins and butterflies are better off circulating naturally out in the world. The only collection of this sort she'd ever viewed with interest was her daughter Junie's Beatles Bubblegum Card Collection. The full face of Ringo Starr had been lovingly framed in tinfoil on the first page. Flipping through the Dragon's album, Stella became more and more certain that nobody could love these coins the way Junie had loved Ringo Starr. What page was the coin on? Stella called. The Bonnie Prince one you're missing. You mean the coin Cheryl took? Came the answer through the washroom door. 18. Page 18 was third from last in the volume. This page was indeed special. It held only one circle, about an inch in diameter. The circle was empty. An unreadable scrawl underneath, presumably offering an historical commentary on the cone, coin, squiggled on down half the page. Stella studied the front of the cardboard page and then looked at the back. It was indeed so like the pages of the album where her daughter Junie used to keep her Beatles cards. She remembered Junie's sobs when the picture of the mop tops fleeing the barber's chair went missing. Stella had eventually found it. Aha! At the top of the page, she pulled the two pieces of cardboard apart. 
She reached down inside, buckling the page somewhat. Then she took, shook the album. Something was in there all right. With an effort, she turned the album on its side and a coin the size of a quarter rolled out. Stella found herself peering down at a stamped-out profile of the reportedly dissolute, but certainly bonny, Prince Charlie. There, Stella said, as uh, Mrs. McAndrew opened the door to the washroom. Hold out your hand. The dragon did, and Stella placed the coin inside it. She continued, you could have found it yourself, Alice McAndrew, and saved everybody a lot of trouble. What would a person like Cheryl do with a rare coin anyway? Surely that sort of thing is very traceable by the police, not like regular money. Mrs. McAndrew cradled the coin in her palm, her thin fingers curled around it. Frowning, she examined one side and then the other. I'm very happy to have this back. Where did you find it? Stella indicated the open album. In between the two sides of the cardboard page, it had fallen through. I trust you will say nothing about the money in between those pages, Mrs. McAndrew said. I hold you to your honour. Stella stared. It seemed to her that the woman was talking nonsense. What money? More coins? There had been nothing else in the space between the pages. The thousand dollar bill, Mrs. McAndrew said. Stella looked from the album to Mrs. McAndrew. There was no thousand dollar bill in this book. Are you sure you're not doing that thing I do? She asked diplomatically, or fairly diplomatically. When you mix up the decades and get the present time wrong. Stella Ryman, are you gaga or just a poor listener? Pay attention. If there's no thousand dollar bill in there, then Cheryl took that. For crying out loud. Well, and truly infuriated, Stella turned back to the album. When Alice McAndrew barked exhortations to take care, Stella tugged the cardboard pages open at the top and looked between them. And well, coins fell out of their holes and clattered onto the vanity surface. Between the sides of the last page of the album, she spotted a bit of pink paper. She wiggled her hand in and caught the note between forefinger and middle finger. Somehow, she pulled it free and held it up. I've never seen a thousand dollar bill before, Stella said. I don't know that, I didn't know that denomination was pink. It looked a little like Monopoly money but the paper felt heavy and smooth between her fingers. It's Canadian legal tender, the dragon said swiftly. I see. Pushing her glasses up on her nose, Stella peered at the bill and made a young Queen Elizabeth's face on the one side and a monochrome landscape on the other. She held the bill out to the dragon. So here it is. And now you can call Cheryl in and apologize and make everything right. And Stella decided she herself was going to have a nice long lie down before lunch. She felt as knackered as an old gray mare. Mrs. McAndrew took the money from her and held it in the same hand as the Bonnie Prince Charlie coin, she said. 
That's all very well, but where are the others? What others? There were no more bills between those pages. There was a thousand dollar bill inside each of those pages, 18 in that book alone. That makes $18,000. Stella took a step away from the crocodile-like album as if it still had its teeth and would bite.